Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 66th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of COVID-19 race and emergency management with Joki Marumba and Didi Bennett. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on podbean.com, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 15th, 2020, there are 7,969,003 confirmed cases globally of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 7,578,078 reported on Friday. Of those, 2,105,482 are in the United States, up from 2,036,429 reported on Friday. There's now a total of 115,998 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 114,195 deaths reported on Friday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, Annabelle Francisco de Brito, 90, saw the world as a merchant marine, but was the heart of a North Philadelphia block by Valerie Russ. This appeared January 2nd, excuse me, June 2nd, 2020, in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Renita de Brito said neighbors called her father Nemo because they weren't sure how to pronounce Annabelle. Born in Cape Verde, off the coast of West Africa, Mr. de Brito traveled the world as a merchant marine spending time in Portugal, France, the Netherlands, Italy, and Brazil. But when he retired in 1968, he made North Philadelphia his home, specifically the 1800 block of Master Street, where his immigrant father and stepmother had settled years before. Mr. DeBrito, then 39, found work driving a truck delivering heavy kegs of beer for Schmidt Brewery Distribution Company. In 1972, he wed Renata Rawls, who lived across the street. She died last year. The couple had two daughters, but Mr. DeBrito had 10 other children around the globe. Mr. DeBrito became a beloved community leader. He loved people, his daughter said. He liked to get out to see people, and he loved to tell jokes and make people laugh. He was also a no-nonsense man who spoke out if he saw young men getting into trouble. He would say, hey man, what are you doing? You know you shouldn't be out here doing this, his daughter said. He was healthy and strong and looked young for his age and he loved taking long walks even after turning 90 last September. He walked from North Philly to Center City, and he could walk faster than me, his daughter said. That's why the family thought he would beat the coronavirus when he fell ill. But Mr. DeBrito died from COVID-19 on Friday, April 24th, at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Born in 1929, Mr. DeBrito was the oldest child of Francisco Brito Sr. and Maria Silva. After high school, he joined the Merchant Marine. His first language was Portuguese, but he also spoke Italian, French, Spanish, and Dutch. Anywhere we went, he would know everyone's language and could speak to them. He made a lot of friends that way, his daughter said. 
He loved telling stories about the places he had seen. But his favorite trip was to Rome, when he and his brother, Monsignor Federico Brito, attended the canonization of St. Catherine Drexel of Philadelphia. A devout Catholic and a member of St. Cyprian Roman Catholic Church, Mr. DeBrito was thrilled to attend a mass said by Pope John Paul II. The funeral was live streamed on Wednesday, May 6th. Okay, I'd like to turn to our discussion for today. And to do that, I'm going to introduce our guests. So, first guest is Dee Dee Bennett. Dr. Bennett is an assistant professor in the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity at the University at Albany, State University of New York. Her research interests include emergency management, socially vulnerable populations during disasters, emergency communication, disaster policy, and mobile wireless communication. She broadly examines the influence and integration of advanced technologies on the practice of emergency management and for use by vulnerable populations. Dr. Bennett received her PhD from Oklahoma State University in fire and emergency management. In addition to bringing expertise in emergency management, she has a unique academic background having received both her MS in public policy and bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from the Georgia Institute of Technology. She is an advisory board member for the Institute for Diversity and Inclusion in Emergency Management. My second guest is Joki Marumba. Early in her PhD graduate studies at Oklahoma State University, she briefly worked with a USAID-funded consultancy team. The team was funded to develop a national pandemic preparedness plan for Kenya in collaboration with Kenya's National Disaster Operations Center. During that consultancy, a colleague recommended the book, The New Plagues, Pandemics and Poverty in a Globalized World by Stefan Kaufman. The confluence of these two events resulted in Jockey's dedicated focus on understanding how people, systems, and institutions interact with public health disasters and pandemics. Her dissertation focus was on the role social vulnerability indicators play during the H1N1 pandemic of 2009. Dr. Joki Marumba now teaches emergency management and disaster science at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. Dr. Marumba and Dr. Bennett, thank you so much for joining me on COVID calls today. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. So what I'd like to do is start the discussion the way I have with all of these is just to find out the COVID-19 situation where you are. So if you wouldn't mind bringing us up to date, and these last weeks, I've also been asking if people would be willing to share the situation regarding George Floyd protest, where you are, if there's anything going on there, so that our viewers and listeners can have a broad sense of how things are, where you're located. So Didi, could I start with you? Uh, sure. Um, so I had to look up at, I'm in New York, but since most of the uh, pandemic information from from the state is about the city, I figure I tell you what's going on upstate. Um, there are in this area where the school is uh, close to 2,000 confirmed um, and 102 deaths up here, um, which is remarkably different than what's happening um, in New York City where there's over 209,000 confirmed and over 17,000 deaths. Um, so the 
what I've noticed that's a little bit different from my family elsewhere is that there's a change a little bit in the culture around masks and um, social distancing happening here um, than there is in other places. However, I did hear in the news recently that uh, Cuomo was upset with some folks down in the city um, and in, in um, was that Long Island and um, Manhattan or so, the Hamptons, sorry, the Hamptons and, uh, and uh, the Manhattan area because, you know, sometimes when we're opening these, these uh, locations up, people are kind of, they forget, right? <laughs> they forget that it's a pandemic ongoing, especially since there has been a shift in our news, right? So when I'm looking at the news, they don't have that ticker anymore about what's going on. Um, and so that can also lead to some people forgetting that there's a pandemic and that people are still dying at really uh, grotesque numbers. Um, so that's kind of where we are with the pandemic. There have been um, some protests up here uh, with regard to George Floyd's uh, murder and been um, here in Albany area. Um, and, and that hasn't, I haven't seen anything recently, but that has happened in the last three weeks. Um, it hasn't been as ongoing as some of the other areas uh, that I've seen. Thank you for, for situating us, how things are, where you are. Shelby, same, same question to you. Yeah, uh, thank you, uh, Scott, and thank you very much for for the invitation to this conversation today. So I live I live in uh, Oklahoma, and I also live in Omaha, Nebraska, when, whenever I'm working. But my family is here in uh, Oklahoma currently. I uh, would like to say that the numbers, obviously, um, statewide, sometimes obviously, are very different when it comes to what's going on, you know, at, at, in that little town that you live or in the big town. So I do not live in a very big town in Oklahoma. I am about an hour away from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And in Stillwater, Oklahoma, which is a very historic and very important town uh, based on what's going on currently. But what's happening in Stillwater, Oklahoma, it, just to break down the numbers, is that um, between the, the, the first three months until up until May, we only had 22 infections in my town, right? Um, and, the, and, 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 uh, and then we had, you know, a few, almost about a week and a half to two weeks of, of uh, zero new infections happening in the town. And so we started the process of sort of reopening, okay? which is, is 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 a very deceptive term because you know you're reopening from what you know and and, the, and covid is still here and there's the misconception that we are already past the first wave which is not necessarily the case we we really are strictly still in the first one so what has happened since in connection in conjunction with uh, memorial day happening and all the reopening is that in my town uh, we now have in the since june 5th to to uh about 12, uh, we have had um, about 25 new infections happen, right? So I, I like that disaggregation because it shows, it tells the story of, you know, what is going on. So we have, you know, central locations where people like to go, major stores in, in as major as they can get in a little town, having to close down, you know, restaurants and things like that. So that's what's going on. With regard to uh, the George Floyd scenario, is um, there has been people? Who, there have been people who have, you know, made a stand and and protested and and protests looking, you know, very different sometimes than what you're seeing in the major cities. Some of the ways in which my little town is actually calling, you know, 
to question some of the practices that have been going on is looking at the historical uh, processes that have existed, for example, in the naming of buildings, you know, whether on campus or off campus at Oklahoma State University, you know, and participating online to express protest in, in, in some ways that are different other than what we're seeing in the major cities. And the president's rally will be in Tulsa later this week. Is that right? Yes, the, there will be a rally, the first rally um, uh, launching a, the, the new presidential campaign is going to be um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, Tulsa, Oklahoma is a historic, historic town. Um, and the day on which this uh, rally was supposed, indoor rally was supposed to be held was going to be on Juneteenth, another very, uh, you know, important historical day marking the ending of slavery in this country, okay? So just, again, a confluence of two very historic, very important um, dates to the people who live in Tulsa and the area of Greenwood, Tulsa, where, you know, there was the, the, the first Black Wall Street, in fact, was also known as Little Africa at some point, Okay. And we know that there were protests and the burning down of the area in 1921, you know, after a young uh, black man was accused of um, assaulting a white woman. And, and we lost 300 lives then. Um, and, and um, you know, it was a police person that reported this attack, this supposed attack uh, of the white of the of the young man, you know. Um, and so. It's it's almost surreal to be dealing with the issues of Brianna of um, of uh, George Floyd and 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 all the other people's lives in in 2020 almost 100 years since Greenwood. Thank you for giving us that that really really important context mm-hmm. um, and that history and that legacy that maybe a lot of Americans um, either hadn't been aware of um, or had forgotten about if they had ever been taught it. And now it comes back onto the front page of the newspaper. I'm assuming it was not President Trump's intention to invite Americans into a deeper exploration of African-American history. Um, but there it is. And it's, I think, been, to me, quite important. Um, also, following the health officials there, if I'm correct, the maybe not the state official, but the Tulsa City health uh, officials have expressed publicly concern about the about the uh, absolutely. They would be remiss if they didn't do that. You know, they would be remiss, but they are professionals doing their job and doing the best that they can to inform people. And there has been a shift in dates from the 19th to the 20th, which to me is still a slap in the face, to uh, put it mildly, because it still does not reflect or respect the history of the place, the history of the state which you know has the largest number of Native American communities as well, who have been just absolutely decimated um, in in previous um, public health disasters, and 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 are also, and also stand the risk of once again being impacted along with the African American communities and other communities in 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 the Tulsa areas. You know, it's not going to be just limited to the people who attend this indoor activity on the twentieth a day later. It's about everyone else as well. Absolutely. I want to get to know a little bit more about both of your research uh, areas of interest. And Didi, if it's okay, I'll start with you. Why were you drawn into this kind of work? What are some of the key questions that you work on in your research at this time? Um, So um, it's 
kind of a long convoluted story about how I got involved, but it has to do with um, partially about my work that I was doing at Georgia Tech um, at the time as a research engineer, um, and then going on to get my public policy um, master's in which I was able to work um, on emergency management and vulnerable populations. Um, and through that, I got introduced to this emergency management world, uh, the research thereof, and was really, really excited about what I was doing and was able to see the connections between uh, some of the work I was doing in the engineering side, uh, some of the work that was happening in the policy side, and then learning about what how that, that fit into the application and the practice thereof. Um, so I tend to look at a lot of things dealing with vulnerable populations, and that crosses the gamut. A lot of my research has been with people with disabilities, but I'm also looking at racial and ethnic minorities as of late and um, immigrant communities, those with limited English proficiency, um, all of those tend to cross over my research. Um, I, I also um, recently have been doing a, a lot of work uh, in and around COVID-19 as it relates to uh, emergency management and some of my other interests. So I'm looking right now at how uh, COVID-19 messaging is reaching um, older adults. I'm also looking at um, technological innovations um, and how those have influenced or the response of COVID-19 as well as how it's changed our lives because of our response to COVID-19. Um, and I'm also looking at the racial and ethnic um, minority, com uh, I guess, minority uh, communities, and especially in New York State here, and how um, what we can learn from disaster research in terms of the what everybody is looking at as uh, the health disparities. But I think we can look at it a little bit broader um, and look at it in terms of these vulnerable populations and some of the other aspects that actually fit into the health disparities. And I, I know you have some other questions, so I'm picking my words carefully. <laughs> but, That's yeah. great. Thank you so much. Well, we have, an, we have an hour, 40 more minutes, so we have plenty of time to go into depth. I mean, I'm so impressed with the breadth of what you're describing there. And I do want to talk in a minute a little bit more about vulnerable populations and what that means. Choki, let me come to you though and ask mm -hmm. the, sort of the same question. Uh, what were the areas of interest that brought you into this kind of research and what are the main questions that you work on right now? Actually, uh, so so very much, uh, you know, I mean, a story about meanderings, right? Um, I started um, with my first degree in Kenya where I did my, my country of origin, where I did a communications and community development work and absolutely just loved working in the community, uh, working with the community and seeing people, especially women's groups at that time, organizing and, and, and being able to really lift themselves up out of you know various uh, realities that they were living all right and then i moved to the us and did a masters in hospitality management worked in food service and from and when i was working in food service management um after my first degree the two things i was interested in is the multicultural education processes of um you know of, of students other than you know your your predominantly white students you know interested in their learning processes because i saw a lot of um international students as well as um you know my um, marginalized community students in the us so i was curious about how they learned but i was also curious from a hospitality angle about preparedness i didn't know the language then right i wondered how institutions of higher higher learning where i was working at the time prepare for i, li I lived in tornado alley still do 
you know. So I was curious about our preparedness for that, right? And then broaden that out to food security and insecurity. And for the longest time, that's what I, you know, I, I was quite interested in, you know, beginning there. But then um, as life goes, connections with people, conversations with people, and I got introduced to uh, Dr. Brenda Phillips. And um, through her, I was able to learn more about the disaster management approaches and teaching. And I was like, this is it. This is what I wanted to do. So I, I changed my PhD trajectory and got involved in um, you know disaster management in, in that whole field. Another area which I've also been very very interested invested in is in voluntary voluntary work around i am an american red cross volunteer so just working with that and and seeing again and again the kind of people who end up you know in shelters the kind of people who end up just being so disparately Im impacted right so you know my interest therefore in disaster management is about the people who are the most and the worst affected uh, by disasters. And then I'm also really interested in understanding why. Okay, so pandemics are my, my key interest. And so understanding what it is, what the social determinants of health are, right? The external realities that people live with and how those merge to make people more susceptible and more at risk for public health emergencies has been my area of interest. So Scott, what you have here is like one degree from Brenda Phillips uh, here because <laughs> Brenda Phillips <laughs> is also my advisor. So uh, you have two people here that have one degree from Brenda Phillips. That's how you chose us. I thought I had taken, I didn't realize that so that's what I had uh, assembled in this conversation. I think oh, it's yeah. tremendous. Um, and it uh, also speaks to the degree to which um, disaster research is still, I think it's a big tent, it's getting bigger, but it's, mm -hmm. it's sometimes a little bit small or a little close. Um, and the work that everybody I think is doing right now to try to draw more and more people into this work. But I think it's, I think it's really um, important mm -hmm. also to acknowledge our intellectual trajectories and those people who... It is, and also to to acknowledge that just the how multidisciplinary it is, you know, to the degree that there's it touches on so many different facets of life and living, right? That sometimes people might not have the language for it, but but that's exactly what they're looking for. You know? Let's talk for a second about emergency management, and and I know this sounds it seems a little basic, but you know, people who've been following COVID calls, we've had. Um, a lot of people from public health, and we've had a lot of discussion of law enforcement mm. and a lot of talk about disaster research. We've had comparably little about emergency management. I did have Sam Montano on. I had Patrick Roberts on. Great discussions. And others who've talked about emergency management. But this is really pretty squarely getting into your areas of interest and, and work. Maybe, Dee, could you just walk us through very just at a basic level, when we talk about emergency management in the United States, who are we referring to? Mm -hmm. Where do we find them? So I'll use what um, we have as principles of emergency management, kind of basic things, is that emergency management is this managerial function that's supposed to help communities and facilitate their um, their response and recovery efforts. Um, so it's it's akin to some of the emergency services and so some people get involved in that, but it's not necessarily that, right? So you have ways of bringing up, um, 
the response, the recovery, the mitigation, and the preparedness measures that are happening at the community level. You have emergency managers that help to facilitate that. They help to organize, they help to coordinate, um, and they help to educate uh, the public on best practices for uh, their communities. I think that's one of the more basic ways of just saying, this is what an emergency manager does. And so, and that's true whether it's New York City that has a whole lot of emergency managers and specialized people that work in there. And it is for um, some of the smaller towns like in Nebraska where someone is wearing multiple hats and they're the emergency manager and they're something else, right? So um, a lot of times you see this being convoluted uh, with, with law enforcement because that person may wear a police chief hat and emergency manager. You may see it convoluted with, um, with firefighters as well. Same thing. You know, sometimes that person is being tapped to do that, to do that, but we're seeing a professionalization happening in the field in which people are beginning to recognize uh, the unique differences that take place at large scale disasters, as opposed to your everyday emergencies. I Choki. <laughs> Choki, do you want to add anything to that? Yes, because yes. it's, uh-huh. Go ahead. Go ahead, Scott. No, no, please. Thank you. Go yeah, the way I, I I fully agree with what Didi, the way Didi puts it, and and the way I like to also tell it, especially to my students, or when I'm trying to explain what I do to my family members who who may not quite you know grasp it, is that we are the back of the house in a sense. The, the the role that you do not see, and by back of the house, I mean placing it within the the context of the disaster phases, is that what you see typically, or the ten, the attention that disasters and catastrophes get, is typically during the response phase. Right. We are the people who are doing everything else between, you know, you know, re- recovery and, and mitigation and and preparedness. We are the ones who are helping support the blue sky events, the f- blue sky um, activities. And they re- the, 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 the spectrum is wide, you know, about the different roles that are played. So we are not wearing the police uniform. We are not wearing the EMT uniform, but we are the ones who are actually supporting and, and linking people and, and, and leveraging uh, social cap- capacity. I would add that there's not just, um, I think sometimes people think emergency managers only get involved when it's a natural hazard or something like that. Um, They're actually involved in all hazards and all potential hazards. Um, So you'll see emergency managers involved in everything from, you know, a tornado, um, uh, hurricane, as well as some terrorist uh, activities and um, maybe man-made chemical spills, things like that, if they're large enough. Mm -hmm. them involved in things that aren't necessarily disasters, but that have the potential where you have people coming together. So some of your large scale events, like when we had them before, like Super Bowl and things like that, you'll see emergency managers are involved and usually um, are are very much important in um, just keeping an understanding of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And and if I may also add uh, that from from an international and, and from a global perspective, is there are a lot of people doing the work without the title. Right. They, they, they might not have the work and they may, they may not look like the part, but that's the work that they are doing. You know, they, they are informally working somewhere in a village and to make things happen. They are the repositories of information. They are the repositories of of systems. Right. On how to behave or what to do during a locust inv- invasion. Right. Or a chronic um or, uh, unfolding disaster like a drought and and famine, right? So it's it's work that's ongoing and it's work, um, you know, just being barely fifty years that continue to that continually needs to be highlighted and amplified. 
That's a very good point. I think one of the things yeah. you mentioned here is that when we were learning about some of the areas in which emergency managers get involved, we looked at these um, rapid onset disasters, mm-hmm. and all slow onset disasters. Mm-hmm. And for the life of me, the whole time we're learning about pandemics and uh, droughts and, and things of that nature, um, everybody is putting that onto um, more developing countries and things like that, as opposed to thinking about the potential for something here. And it's funny to, well, not funny, but it's interesting, you know, to hear um, a lot of people saying, so now where does this fit within emergency management? Where in my mind, it's like, oh, it's, well, it's always been there. It's just yeah. how we handle it and how we mm-hmm. understand it has been different because, well, you know, this is the United States and we haven't really dealt with anything like this, this large. Absolutely. It's, yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, um, understanding that you said something that's really important, mainstreaming disasters and catastrophes, right. they've always been there. So, you know, what what do the different cultures tell us? What, what do those guardians tell us that they did? And can we um, leverage that on how we are, you know, propagating or trying to enhance emergency management rather than trying to to introduce it like it's this entirely new Western concept, right? Right. And transferability does not happen like that, right? So um, it's it's quite a broad and interesting area, you know, and and bringing in uh, the global component of it. We need to understand that, yes, all disasters are local, but even as much as they as in as they are local, you need to understand, you know, that local can go to global pretty quick, right? And pandemics are showing us that. Um, uh, what, uh, climate change is also going to be something that we have to absorb in that sense as well. Remind people that you're listening to COVID Calls, and we're talking with Joki Marumba and Didi Bennett about emergency management. And my head is absolutely tingling uh, because of these many different things that have been um, brought to bear in the last few minutes, and, and particularly this very powerful idea about not waiting to sort of say, "Well, does this fit the typology of what emergency management is?" But actually, work um, by sort of observing the functions that people serve. Mm-hmm. And see how that maps on to mm-hmm. you know what emergency mm-hmm. management is, where, mm-hmm. uh, which to me is a very creative approach, and maybe a very practical approach. Depending on, you know, not everything is the United States, not everything is FEMA, and, and I worry that often in our news reporting, and it because it's it's hard, it's hard to report disasters, but in our news reporting, it's like FEMA is emergency management, and everything else is we don't understand what that what that mm-hmm. is. You're describing a much more Diverse. Yes, and and um, and if we may too, we are also de- de- defined. We are talking about function, function. Even when we look at how we approach uh, people with disabilities, right? It's looking at fun- what are the functional needs. Like, how do we support that rather than a medicalized, nice and tight definition of this is what this is. This is what the approaches need to be. It's more like how can we support? How can we come alongside? Well, yeah, and I guess that makes a good point is that the best way is to bring the communities in to the fold so that you actually understand what it is and you're not looking from the outside and saying, hey, we're just going to do this for you or tell you this is the only way. Um, The one thing is, yeah, everyone in disaster um, management 
scientists, disaster science researchers, you know, and to think, you know, disasters start locally. That's that's important, but we can still learn from others and actually learn about what's happening. I think in this field, we need to be continual learners and be open to what's happening and see how this thing can be applied um, elsewhere or, you know, what are the best practices and actually learn from each other. Um, I know there are a lot of um, um, organizations and, and societies for the emergency management uh, field that are trying to do that. There has to be some 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 real learning happening, you know, so that we're not continuously making the same uh, mistakes and assumptions uh, each time. I want to ask you both about uh, an area that you specialize in and a term you've used, which is vulnerable populations. And it may not be one it, it seems to make sense of what it is on the face of it, and yet you've both talked about it in slightly different ways. Can we talk a little bit about what what you mean by that? And, and I'm also interested as a historian about how we come to that sort of a mm-hmm. judgment. In other words, how does history how does history produce vulnerability? And and is it possible to not be a vulnerable population once you've been vulnerable? I'm I'm interested in thinking about who vulnerable populations are, but also how that moves across time. Either of you want to take a first pass at that? Yeah, I, I, I can. I, I would like to to make one statement about you know vulnerability not being static, right? It's not this one system or or one approach and or or one identifier that um, either an individual or a group of people have or you know that a descriptive is used on, right? It it changes and shifts depending on what's going on right so it's almost like there's there's got to be some elasticity around it right and 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 you cannot talk vulnerability without discussing resilience because people have lived through these events you know historically people have lived through so understanding what is it that has afforded them resilience and how can we build on that resilience so coming back to Didi's comment about you know bringing people around the table or around the fire to make these decisions and in discussions around you know how do we not only identify what our vulnerabilities are and get defined by those uh, vulnerabilities, but but you know how do we amplify um, what has enabled us to survive historically, and how we can contort and shape ourselves so that we are able, with the current challenges, to survive and thrive through the challenges that we have at the time. Yeah, you know, there's an interesting discussion that has been ongoing, I've seen on Twitter, about the term vulnerable populations and some people having kind of a a visceral reaction to this term, only because when we say it, you know, we're saying, okay, it's usually these individuals or these groups of people or something like that. And I think um, it's that naming that gets people, um, you know, up under their skin. And I think it might just be not the naming of it, but how that is interpreted and how it has been interpreted in our um, so when you have vulnerable populations, I like to, to clarify that it's the characteristics of the individual group, but also potentially their situations and that we can move in and out. Like Joki was saying, it's not static. Um, it is dynamic. You can move in and out depending on the disaster itself or depending on your actual situation. And mm-hmm. I have explained this recently 
um, to a group is that, you know, when we say, oh, it's certain racial and ethnic minorities, for example, and sometimes it could be based on your gender. It's like, okay, well, I'm an African-American woman, but that does not explain my vulnerability by itself, right? It has to have something to do with other factors that are happening in my life. I might be more or less vulnerable than the next African-American woman because of my access to certain resources, my access to power, my understanding of what's happening, maybe because I'm even more prepared. Um, so there's a lot of different things that go into vulnerability. And I really love, um, and since I'm an academic, I'll go ahead and cite some stuff, but, um, you know, Kale started 2007, started talking about vulnerability and the term. And even when I use this term with, you know, practitioners or use it with students, what I hear, what they hear when they hear the term vulnerability for socially vulnerable populations is it's this small segment of the population that we're talking about, right? Um, and so if I give you numbers on this one small section of the population, uh, like um, say people with disabilities, you know, somewhere around 3%, and then you're like, well, okay, well, we're supposed to be, you know, doing things for the majority. So, you know, 20%, where's our, you know, what are we, what are we really talking about? But Kale's talked about the fact that once you start adding up all the different vulnerable populations, you are over 50% of the, of the U.S. population, just, just for U.S. alone. Again, vulnerability and social vulnerability changes based on where you are and based on the society as well. In the United States here, we look at people with disabilities, we look at older adults, we look at, um, you know, racial and ethnic minorities. You can just go look at the census, go look at those who can't be in the same category and then add, you know, so if we're looking at children and older adults, guess what? You're already close to 40. You can't be both a child and an older adult. Um, you're already past 40% there in terms of potential vulnerability. So the idea, this this idea that we have that we are um, planning for the majority is actually uh, very um, misleading uh, for a lot of people. We should, we sh I don't believe that we should be practicing for the majority. I believe that we should be practicing for the most vulnerable because that's where we get all of our hangups. And if we did, we would actually be doing the best for the most. Um, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's an old, um, thought process that comes out of um, engineering for me in which, you know, there was a term about uh, universal design. How do we design different products? And this idea that, you know, designing it for the, the majority always leaves out all these different people. But if we designed with universal use in mind that, you know, we would capture everybody. And I, I always go back to that because when we start planning for these communities, when we start looking at the communities that actually need the help, you go back to some of the, the major disasters, you realize they all have something in common. They are these, these populations that needed specific help that we weren't giving because we were mm -hmm. thinking about the majority. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also a misnomer because the majority is a vulnerable population. It's incredibly powerful the way you're describing this. Uh, and and this idea that vulnerable populations at any given time, some of us might fall into that that category. Yeah, not even be in a vulnerable population. <laughs> so there's like I, everybody could be, and you. I don't know your specifics. I haven't talked to you, but I know that it's possible that you you may have a disability. I don't know about. You may have different things that's going on in your family structure, or in your income, or in your housing structure that leads you to be a little bit more vulnerable uh, than one would assume just face value. So to me, it's it's also sort of, it's really revealing some of the deeper history of emergency management sort of cutting out of kind of military mindset that you could just kind of divide the population up according to where it was and you would just sort of implement a solution and that we still in many ways are kind of 
what you're describing, evolving, moving out of that and thinking much more of emergency management, reflecting society as it is and as we want it to be. I mean, there's sort of an aspirational aspect here, as I hear you both talking, which is, to me, there's an intersection here with how we think about, <clears throat> excuse me, our democracy and a democracy that's aware of social difference, but provides equality. Mm -hmm. And I, and I wonder about that, but I also worry about that with emergency management because, you know, the track record of emergency management, as, it, as I read it, as perceived by minority communities, I'm thinking of Hurricane Katrina here, for example. I mean, don't some communities have a real leg to stand on when they say emergency management hasn't worked for us? We've been left out of equal protection in a disaster. Uh, if I if I may say something about that, um, you you have a point in that there are going, there is going to be communities and with and with reference to Hurricane Katrina, there are communities that were left out of the conversation. There are communities that were just left out entirely when it came to trying to respond to what it is that was happening on the ground, right? But if you understand emergency management from the perspective that you know take an take an institution like FEMA, or or even just the federal government. Emergency management really does um, center around the reality that there is not a single organization anywhere in the world that can actually um, successfully and fully encompass the needs of people after impact. That is one. The other thing that we do whenever we, we look at the Katrina reality is, is that we, ha we have to understand um, who is emergency management, right? Who is FEMA, for example, you know, and what is the role of FEMA and where is FEMA placed in, 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 in the context of federal government, right? In what ways are they enabled? In what ways are they curtailed, right? The role of the mayor, the role of the governor, you know, how do all those dynamics come into place so that by the time that the policies are implemented at the person level, at the community family level, right, they are just absolutely off kilter to what the needs of that community is, right? So there's a loss and there's a failure to really understand and comprehend what emergency management is about, right? And the role that emergency management is. And when you look at where we are placed, where, where for example, FEMA is placed, right, is within, within just a conglomerate of other, you know, departmental organizations in this country, right? And we have seen historically that when FEMA has been given the support that they needed, you know, um, placed as cabinet level positions, right? Resourced by people who were familiar, um, professional, and, and had practiced emergency management, right? Then they have done better. So it is true that there has been, you know, groups that have fallen through the cracks. And that's where emergency comes in, you know, to support that kind of, you know, falling through the, through the cracks. But we all, there's a failure on very many levels in as far as trying to support the work of emergency management as is needed. Yeah, so Scott, how much time do we have? Yeah. That could have been an entire <laughs> discussion all by itself and probably sure. extra A, B. Well, we'll bring you for a part two, but let's get yeah. started on it. Yes, the thing is with... Um, it's a very um, visible 
disaster, one that a lot of people, especially in our age group, uh, remember. It's harder for me to even use that as an example in my classrooms because most of the students do not remember Hurricane Katrina, believe it or not, um, and don't know anything about it. So um, when I'm looking at Hurricane Katrina, I it's hard for me to answer your question because there are so many levels of, of, of problems. Uh, one of the first one is just we need a different um, culture around preparedness at a, a national level, just for us to understand what it is that um, what what it is that emergency managers do. What is it about preparing for something? I mean, at this point, you have some preppers. Right. And then the rest of us and trying to figure out what's going on. Um, but when you say what is the problem with FEMA in terms of Hurricane Katrina, um, there are a lot of things missing in that that question, right? because we've already established that disasters start locally. What's happening at the local level and FEMA already starts out its federal emergency management agency. So how do you get from that federal level all the way down to what's happening at the ground? And when you look at a lot of different um, documentaries, if you remember what happened, if you look at some of the research, you'll realize that there was a disconnect from the time they started their response all the way to what was happening at the ground level, not barring the fact that there was also issues going on within, um, you know, uh, all of the different major cities and, and along the Gulf Coast that were impacted. Um, and in particular, I know a lot of people like to bring up uh, New Orleans, but there were a lot of different things going on along the coast and all of them had very similar concerns. And it's that they had some assumptions built in that didn't make any sense. Um, it wasn't based on their practice. It wasn't based on the research. I and mean, there was also things that were ongoing uh, on multiple levels um, of governance uh, that was happening. A really good documentary um, or a documentary I like that was put together that can kind of discuss some of that. And you can see it from their own words, right? And that is uh, when the levees broke. Um, when you watch that and you hear from the governor, you hear from the mayor, you hear from, um, you know, folks at the federal level and others who were brought in, you know, later on, you start to realize all the different disconnects. There was some political things going on there. There were some practice and policy issues going on. There were also just, I don't trust this person kind of thing going on. Um, and then that led to, I didn't trust that all of this was happening down there. I thought that was overblown. Um, you also have layers of, of how the media's portrayal of what happened and what they actually showed impacted how it was seen uh, from some government officials and then how they responded in return. Um, some of this is just what we start to feed, what kind of narrative we want to feed about what happened. Um, and it also relates a lot to some of the myths of disaster. Um, so glad that you mentioned when the levees broke. And I use that when I when I teach, and it's a documentary. If you're not familiar with it, that was directed by Spike Lee. And one of the points of the documentary, as I read it, as I watch it, is is also examining structural racism in American history. Yeah. So this is, um, I think, this is is something that I've seen some talking around the edges. But that's just one of the reasons I was really eager to speak with both of you today as well, and that's to think about, to get your thoughts about the ways that emergency management meets structural racism, that is how you meet communities where they are, and, to, and acknowledge, you know, as you're talking about jokey uh, resilience and talking about vulnerability, um, sometimes that resilience that has been produced is a direct result of structural racism and segregation in American life. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the Hurricane Katrina 
story. I think it's obviously been on everyone's mind now with George Floyd and the pandemic happening simultaneously. Communities of color have suffered disproportionately in both cases. Mm -hmm. But I wonder how we read that back into emergency management. Is emergency management prepared to deal with the racial realities of America today? That's a very interesting question. Um, it's how do they deal with it or how do they manage through it? Because some of this has to, if it's systemic, if it's, in, if it's um, institutional, um, then there's only so much than they, that they can do. Because again, some of these things are built into our laws um, and emergency managers aren't lawmakers. So you have to be pretty clear about what it is that you're hoping that they can accomplish. Being able to be aware that there is systemic racism present, um, that institutional racism exists, that our policies um, are, you know, often biased and don't think about um, uh, those that are most marginalized in our communities. Mm -hmm. um, and I say that specifically because even when we think about uh, some of the advances that have been made along all the different vulnerable populations, as we like to call them, um, we start to realize that uh, there are policies that didn't take them into consideration or take them into consideration only using certain viewpoints uh, about what they're capable of. One of the things that comes up a lot in emergency management, um, especially in, in some after action reports and things like that, is this, this bewilderment in that the communities are able to do something on their own. And how do, if they're doing this on their own, where do we fit in? How do we deal with this? Why are they meeting this unmet need? Um, aren't we supposed to be involved? There's some things that I see that continuously happen around these emerging groups. When you're not helping the communities, all of a sudden they find ways uh, mm -hmm. to help themselves. And sometimes that is through, you know, just them trying to take care of themselves, there can be lessons learned in what they're doing and why they're doing it. There's also uh, something happening um, in terms of just historic prevalence. We've only been doing this for since, uh, was it 79? Uh, so, you know, on some real level uh, for uh, FEMA to be involved. Um, some voluntary organizations have been doing this since the early 1900s. Um, some um, really historic communities that have been around for a while, they've been doing it for longer, and they have a, a lot of different things in place. One I bring up a lot is um, in um, in South Carolina, is the Gullah people in South Carolina have different things. I've heard of a lot on some uh, Native American tribes. I've heard a lot of the Caribbean islands. Um, so there's a lot of things that we can learn from the communities that we're serving if we allow them into the table, at the table. And when I say that, um, I don't want it to seem like just by inviting someone there to the table that that's enough. Um, they have to feel welcomed and they have to feel like their voices are actually heard. So calling someone up randomly and saying, hey, come on to this table and tell us everything or we can tell you. That's not the same thing. Uh, another thing that I've seen a lot that's happened is this. Um, it's a socialization of, of I think, emergency, I don't know, emergency management officials or uh, emergency services in general is this idea that um, if I just tell you, if I go and talk to the community, talk at a community, that is the equivalent of bringing in this whole community approach that you get kind of started. Um, and that's not the, the same thing. Talking at someone is not, is not the same thing as bringing them to the table and listening to what's actually going on.
Mm-hmm. I think I'd like to add on to that. Um, and Scott, you 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 actually um, asked that question within the context of what's going on with the with the protest against not just George Floyd, but the systems that have supported the possibility that we can have the George Floyds of this day, right? Exactly. And and how does emergency management operate? And I'd like to just point on two um, key nuggets. Um, that um, I know we use, I use in emergency management and a lot of my colleagues when it comes to just um, sharing information with our students, the students that come to us, right? And I'd like to reference the social um, the social component, the reality about you know how we define uh, the progression of vulnerability. Understanding that in, in my classes, I know that everybody might not end up being an emergency manager, but I do go ahead and present to them approaches about the progression of vulnerability that has to do with root causes, right? Trying to get to the depth of where the problem is, understanding what the power structures are, right? And understanding how those in turn improve you know, impact people directly, impact how people are governed, impact the, you know, disparities across the board as well. Dynamic pressures, looking at those, what are the legal frameworks that need to be challenged or supported, right? In as in as far as maintaining a status quo, what are those? What are the freedoms, press, press real press freedom? You know, we have seen that in this country becoming a conversation point, right? Where, where the press are sometimes... Um, coerced into a certain narrative, right? Something that we know doesn't, hasn't historically happened in this country. We need to talk about urbanization. We need to talk about globalization. And then we also need to talk about unsafe conditions, all part of progression of vulnerability approach, the progression of vulnerability approach, which is applicable not just in the US, but you know internationally as well. I'm not the only one, emergency management is not the only one using a systems approach to try and resolve or try and address some of the issues that exist. So it's emergency management and a whole lot of other people coming alongside it. The other real quick um, comment I'd like to make is that we historically have done a really good job in you know, doing the research um, and, and, and some disciplines better than others. We are, we are fairly new, but you know, we are getting there. Um, but there's something to be said about mass culture, right? Looking at, for example, what is going on in this country at this moment and the impact that is having abroad as well, okay? Where systems are being called to question that have existed. And what is very interesting to observe is that through mass culture and the and the movement, and, and, and I actually I attribute this thought to uh, Dr. Kiguro Masharia, an independent uh, scholar from Kenya, is, is in a conversation that last week, he was talking about how we need to identify that sometimes policies and practice can change much quicker much quicker than when they are moved by mass culture, like what's happening here in this country and abroad, than just the the, the same old process that, the, that is set in place, the framework that are set in place, because those are slower moving. So those are, they're not as nimble, right, to respond and react to what needs to change. And sometimes then um, bringing it back to emergency management is that I think there needs to be you know that kind of mass cultural movement around how we perceive risk and how we develop a preparedness culture from local levels to the international level do you expect then in this moment to see uh, 
changes within emergency management profession, for example, in terms of who becomes emergency managers? It's not a profession in the United States that's incredibly diverse, I don't think, historically speaking. Here's what I know, is that whether we agree to change our definitions and our applications, people will insist that we do in being better prepared for the second wave of COVID and the next pandemic that comes along. People will put us to the fire for what it is we do. And by that, I mean they will hold us accountable, right? So we either change or we change, right? Because otherwise, we're not going to be responsive to the same people we think we are serving. Well, I I, I do believe that there's going to be some policy changes. I totally agree, think that this is a one of those... Um, major events that leads to policy change on levels. I also believe that um, some of the things that are happening is not as uh, surprising, I guess, to me. And that's that's sad to say. And it's because, you know, Jokey knows, we all know that, you know, disasters tend to exacerbate the inequalities that we already have Mm -hmm. that are ongoing. Um, And that's not just from... uh, a standpoint of, of looking at it from COVID-19 lens. And I did a presentation um, in, uh, I think, early March or late March sometime, right after, you know, everybody was looking around, oh, COVID's happening, everybody's closing down, what's going on? And I wanted to point out then, and I think it's important to point out now that, you know, as these uh, as we focus on COVID-19 or as we were focusing on COVID-19, some, some, what did you think was going to be the impact? Everybody started looking at older adults, people with pre-existing conditions. Um, and at some point they started looking at some of these essential workers and the fact that, Hey, these are, this is where we're going to see the most, the most problems. And I said, um, I think there's going to be two sets of problems. There's going to be a problem around, um, the vulnerability of certain populations to COVID-19, which most likely will take the form of having that social vulnerability, um, lens because we we're not talking about the stuff that Joku brought up, which is basically that pressure and release model, the, the, you know, root causes, dynamic pressures, unsafe conditions that are leading some people to be more vulnerable than others. But on top of that, during the response and the recovery, everything that we're doing, even those who are not being impacted by COVID, they are being squeezed because of our responses to COVID-19, right? So now we have moved to tech, to using technology in a different way. Now we've, we've moved to um, a lot of people getting laid off, all these different factors, mm-hmm. the economy changing, who gets hurt the most there, right? And so you've already seen these economy, this economic numbers, these figures, you've already seen the, uh, the unemployment numbers, and they also look like marginalized populations, right? The same racial and ethnic minority populations that were, uh, that we were kind of a little bit nervous about with COVID-19. And now we can see, yes, they are more uh, susceptible to die and to catch uh, COVID-19. And guess what? They're also more susceptible to lose their job and all these other things. So that is, is again, that is that pressure and release uh, model. That is also the health disparities model. There's always, there's all these different models that we can look at that basically takes into account not just what's happening at the individual level, but what's happening in their community, what's happening in their household, what's happening with the politics or the policies that they are uh, sub- subjected to, and what's happening at the societal level about our general cultural around either those individuals or about what is happening to those individuals. Mm-hmm. So if we start to layer all of this 
together. You know, if we look for connections, we start to realize, wow, these these populations, populations that I am a part of, you know, are really being squeezed in a way that other populations in the United States are not in terms of, you know, just employment education, um, healthcare, and even in what's happening with um, our law enforcement and and um, and other policies. I mean, I can keep going on. There's yeah. security. There's a whole bunch of different things that we can start to layer on top of each other. Um, and uh, I know you, you mentioned something or you asked us a question in an email about um, uh, this idea of whether or not systemic racism exists. And I, it, it does. And I, I just think, um, what was the guy's name? Is it Chad Wolf? Mm-hmm. The director of the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, there is something. Acting director. Um, so there's 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 something I posted a long time ago. There's a, there's this concept of willful ignorance, right? So that can be part of it. But I I looked very closely at the way his quote is worded, um, and he says, "I do not think that we have a systemic racism problem with law enforcement officers across the country." And I think. Part of that is not understanding what systemic racism is because it cannot just be with the law enforcement officers, right? So this isn't about individual racism. This is about the policies in which they are governed by. This is this is everything, right? This is how they are hired. This is what they what the policies they are adhering to. This is also um, what they you know what brotherhood or things that they have going on and what they're being taught. This is their training. This is a lot of different things, and it's not just just with one officer or some subset of officers. And in fact, if it was, it'd be very easy. It might be much easier to point out and to showcase what's going on. And I think that statement kind of speaks to more of his um, um, misunderstanding about what systemic or institutional racism really means and the fact that it's different than individual racism. Um, and it's different than the, that, um, that overt racism. It's more covert most times. And it, there's a lot of different layers of racism. Racism is not one thing, right? And so I think there the, the question is a little bit odd and off. I want to, this is a great conversation, an important one, and I want to tie it back to something Joki said a moment ago. And, and so I wonder, I haven't heard it yet, but I'm not as plugged in as you both are. Um, has there been a defund emergency management movement? Because, you know, the same sort of critique that's been brought to address police. I mean, one of the arguments that's been made very powerfully in Minneapolis and other communities is that through mutual aid and other forms of social reform, we can move away from the idea of police coming from the outside community to somehow bring order into a community. In fact, we could say that this is the argument that they bring disorder. And I, and I wonder and worry if emergency management cannot somehow be looped in. I'm not taking a position here, but I'm, I'm, Interested to see what you think about that, how you answer a community that would say, yeah, emergency management, same thing. It, it seems to be bringing order into our community, but we don't we don't see it. And here's the director of Homeland Security, which oversees FEMA, saying he doesn't see structural racism in law enforcement officers. So why should he why should we trust? So if I don't want to make you force force you to take a position on that, but I'm curious to know if it doesn't somehow fall into this same broader discussion we're having in America right now. OK. You know, and. Uh- I was going to say emergency management is underfunded. Um, I don't know that they have a lot of now. Right. Again, you have to separate um, Department of Homeland Security and then look at the FEMA Absolutely. emergency management. And I'm not even really thinking about FEMA. I'm starting to look at what's happening 
uh, locally, right? I, I don't know that everybody knows who their emergency manager is or their, or their departments. Some departments are run by one, two people, three people most. Um, so I don't know that that's exactly the same thing because I'd like to separate here emergency management and emergency services personnel. Uh, so that's a little bit different. Uh, an emergency manager may uh, work with law enforcement, may work with firefighters, may work with volunteers, may work with a whole bunch of public health. It, it, it works with a whole bunch of different units, but not necessarily over any one of them. Um, and um if you look at some of the funding, I, I think I believe I saw some funding coming out of California in which all of the funding was going into law enforcement. And I think it was like 0.05% or something ridiculous like that goes into emergency management. And so when you start looking at these numbers saying defund emergency management is probably going to put us in a, in a real pickle um, later on if we are not already in it. Um, I know there's there's tons of different ways. I'm looking at the time, Joki. I know you have. Yes, I, I I actually do have something to say about this. Is is uh, you, you 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 your question right now begins to address something that I had said earlier, which is 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 that we we will have to be more accountable about what it is that we are doing, right? Whether it is that we are not adequately and effectively communicating what our role is as emergency management, as as professional emergency managers, which has to needs to happen. Whether it's a matter of we are not communicating our research right, as effectively as we can, that is something that needs to be addressed. But when you step back and look at the role, you know, at the definition or the role or the role of emergency management is and, and emergency managers, it's it's really very similar to the quintessential role of, of why the government was created in the first place, right, which is to walk along, paraphrasing war, which is to walk alongside communities whenever their resources are overwhelmed, okay? Mm -hmm. So, if we have been meeting the, the community at the point where their resources are limited and overwhelmed, then we are doing our role. We are doing what our role is, okay? So that's something that really does need to be clarified. So the question is, what are we being, what is emergency, being fund, uh, emergency management being funded for, right? And then on a, on a larger scale, looking at approaches like humanitarian approaches, right, which are faulty to the extent that the assumption is that people are passive or that people should be passive and not actively involved in their own form of emergency management, okay, at the preparedness, individual preparedness level. So if we have not equipped people for that uh, personal preparedness, then that, that's something that needs to be addressed. We need to be funded to be able to support that, whether it's equipping people with knowledge about around pandemics, right? Whether it's in equipping people for whatever it is, Ebola, like we are seeing right now, there's an outbreak of Ebola in, in, in DRC again, within the context of um, uh, COVID and with all the changes that are happening around the world. How have we invested in people in that area? Or is there still the larger humanitarian um, approach where you know people are passive, they need all the help at once, right? And then people, you know, the people who are providing this support jet out. If we are talking about equipping people to meet the challenges collectively that they are facing, then we are relevant. Right? We are relevant to the people that we are working with, but to the degree that we are not, then it's no wonder that they perceive us in a way that really isn't right. So there's a lot of work to be done. So we're, we're coming up on time. 
thank you both for those statements. Really, really powerful. And I, there's a couple of comments here from people who are listening in. Samantha Montano says, there's not much to defund, to be honest, uh, echoing something you both said. And then Patrick Roberts says, he says, I suppose we defunded civil defense and replaced it with emergency management. I think that the way you both frame that, that defunding issue, showing the complexity or the funding issue itself, maybe. Again, this tangle of agencies, um, but also this sort of maybe need, this sort of continual need for clarity of, of discussion of purpose. And then emergency mm-hmm. management is not only reactive, mm-hmm. but is also mm-hmm. proactive towards what I think is often called mitigation, but it's, it can also sort yeah. of mold very well mm-hmm. onto mm-hmm. ongoing sort of mm-hmm. needs within society itself. Mm-hmm. I want to end with a question here that might move you. It comes from Patrick Roberts. It might move us to a maybe a uh, hopeful, uh, constructive uh, conclusion to our conversation here. He's asking for examples. He says, um, what are the best examples of working with NGOs, emergent groups, and community groups in emergency management situations today? So maybe if you could each give one example of some best practices, some creative work that you're seeing right now to we can take away from this conversation. I would like to add. Yeah, Joe, you start. Go ahead, go ahead. I thought, Joki, you're not talking. <laughs> okay, I, I was actually uh, going to 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 highlight uh, New Zealand as a country, okay, and um, the hope that we see there in the approach that they have used in handling um, COVID nineteen, beginning very early on in 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 responding to um, the outbreak in China and 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 beginning to to actively move towards uh, putting implementing policies that they had. So at a national level, I that that's a country that you know I think is a good current example. Um, at, at a personal level, uh, I would like to highlight someone that I absolutely um, respect and admire for the work that she did as an individual responding to the Ebola challenge in in, um, in Western um, Africa. Fatou Kekula is, was a trained nurse. Uh, well, actually, she was still going through her, her nursing training and her family members got sick and um, she, there was no hospital uh, available. There was no capacity in the hospitals. And so she realized that four of her fa- sick family members were in, in really dire, heavy dire straits. And so she, with the knowledge that she had, she took them back home in the village, tried as much as possible to quarantine them as best as she can, she could, and using trash bags and makeshift, you know, some gloves and, and, and masks, she was actually able to, out of four infected family members, save three and she herself did not get in, infected, which from an Ebola perspective was just tremendous, right? So if we can look at um, such approaches that can apply across the board, that can be um, transferred or highlighted, right? Then that is certainly a ray of hope. Mm. Um, so I would add here that... Um, one of the things that I think is needed, I guess, for practice and also for those who are teaching in the in the profession would be a collection of some of these um, um, examples that individuals at the local level have seen working for them, because I don't know that we know all of them. Um, there is one great, um, um, I guess, document that's out there, and it's more about social media and how it was used during um, hurricane uh 
Superstorm Sandy um, and some of the things that they were seeing happening online um, with different emergent groups, different NGOs. Um, and that gave me some, you know, more wider breadth. I mean, they even started talking about Occupy Sandy and there, you know, there were some concerns about that group in the beginning. So there were they learned and they have it in like a sort of an after action report uh, online that that gives you a lot of information about different groups that came together, different private sector organizations that started working. And I thought that was a really good one. Um, I've also been a part of a lot of really good starts to community groups at the state and local level where they're bringing in usually minor around um, uh, people with disabilities, but they start to bring in older adults, people with disabilities and different um, um of community groups that are trying to make a coalition along with emergency managers at the state and local levels so that they have a relationship prior to a disaster occurring. The only thing that I would say about those groups, again, is that when we do those um, as emergency managers, is it's really good to have some of these coalitions time conditions or whatever. Um, but when it ha when you have a disaster occurring is that you start to learn from your mistakes from that group right and actually apply those the, the lessons learned um it seems to be a lot of a lot harder to learn from the groups and actually apply that to actually have those groups in place so i've heard of a lot of coalitions mm. around multitude of groups either as racial and ethnic minority communities immigrant communities people with disabilities older adults that are out there and i know they exist and that is a great start i think the next start is to learn from those communities and actually try to implement as much as possible um, and those that have done it and done it successfully have started to have a better relationships with those communities that they're serving we've gone over the usual amount of time, because it's been such a fascinating conversation, and I'm going to need to bring you both both back. I want to thank my guests today, Didi Bennett and Joki Marumba, and remind you, you've been listening to COVID Calls. We're on every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow, we're going to continue our Academy of Natural Sciences discussions. We're going to talk about water and water quality and COVID-19, uh, and we're going to also talk about water justice and environmental justice tomorrow. So please do join us for that discussion with Steph Kroll and David Belinsky from the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. And just let me thank my guests again. Didi, Joki, thank you so much for this time today. I really learned a lot from this discussion. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock. <laughs>